Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. Brian was going to fake me out there. I thought he was going to go to Jar Jar Biggs, but he didn't. That's okay. Um, welcome. It is May 1st. Can you believe already? May 1st, May Day. And, uh, but we're not crying May Day here today because we've got a wonderful, wonderful show. I'm Debbie Elias, film, Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can read my movie reviews and interviews in print and online 24-7, but every Monday, I'm right here on Adrenaline Radio with Behind the Lens, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And today, as we've been doing the past couple weeks, we are helping to give a big send-off to Stage LA. Uh, after 33 years, the the longest-running fundraiser for boots on the ground, AIDS help for patients and their families is having their final curtain call on May 13th at the Saban Theater. So last week, Jake, Jake Simpson joined us. Today, Tony nominee and Broadway star Bill Hutton will be joining us at the quarter hour mark. Next week, of course, Brian's favorite, sound engineer Brian's favorite guest of the year, Carol Cook, will be back with us next week. Uh, and you can be sure... She will be our sole guest, and she will be with us for the hour. So you can be sure you will hear great stories from Carol, not only about stage and about her work, but also trips down memory lane, something that I think the TCM fans out there are going to love because she will talk about Robert Osborne. So we got a lot of stuff happening here. May 15th, uh, we also have a very special treat when two-time Edward R. Murrow Award winner for Journalistic Excellence, Alex Quaid, famed embed reporter. Alex will be joining us live as well. And uh, if you've seen any of her reports over the years on, uh, on CNN, going back to the initial, the first Iraq war, and then uh, her embedments in, uh, with special ops in Afghanistan, she is the first reporter to ever embed with special ops and her stories uh, a lot of them you heard some of them talked about last week with our special guests the directors of danger close well now you're going to hear from alex herself on the 15th of may so mark that on your calendar that'll be a nice uh a nice pre-memorial day uh, show so what have you been at? brian's not even near the mic brian can't even talk to us today He's goofing off. Nope, I am uh, the social media person too. So You're the, he's the social media person, the sound Corner. engineer, the phone answerer, and the today answer we're we're combating the roofers on the roof putting a new roof on Adrenaline. Yeah, um, I just I showed up today, and uh, I think Debbie had the similar experience that most of the street was occupied by other businesses that occupy the street, and it's frustrating when. Uh, I'm just going to let it. There's there's a porta potty business, right? And, <laughs> there is. Yes, go ahead. And every Monday after the weekend, they always have a lot of uh, porta potties coming in, and it, it just, they just block the driveway. 
Well, they, today when I pulled up, there was, because there's also a lumber mill Yep. on the street. So there was a huge, a huge tractor trailer filled with lumber in the middle of the street. And then cattywampus to that was the porta potty thing. So you couldn't even get da- get down the street. Well, it used to be worse where there was um, when the people across the street who dis- disassemble police vehicles, right. They when they're busy, they'll have all their cars on the street as well. Well, yeah. So it gets it, it can get a lot worse here, but so yeah, it was it was challenging finding parking today. Yeah, but we found parking. Yes, we're good. It's a nice neighborhood, so there's parking everywhere. Yeah, it's a nice neighborhood. It is. It's a. It's a very. This is one where adrenaline is located in Whittier. It's an. We're on an industrial street, but in the middle of a lovely residential section. Yeah, it's two streets of of businesses, and then when you go on either side of the other streets that we're occupying, there are nothing but really nice properties. These people that own these homes are very, very proud of their properties because you can see them. They're out there. They're maintaining their lawns. They have really nice uh, decorations adorning all their all their yard work. Yeah. I like it. I like this neighborhood. And a lot of the homes, they've got lovely porches and they have rockers sitting out on the front of yeah. them. And I just think that's great. It's it's a it's a funny circus out here. Yeah. When all the group of people that have come into Adrenaline Radio as well as uh, the porta potties. You know, uh, recently, I don't know if someone compl- – obviously someone complained, but the porta potty business are not allowed to dump their – their um their week's worth of stuff until a certain amount of time. I think they have to do it at five o'clock now instead of when they would do it, which was eight in the okay, morning. Okay, now you're just disgusting me. Oh, because I, <laughs> you were never here when that happened. I would. I would get here after. Yeah, and there would still be remnants of that stench everywhere. Yes, that is a stench that does not go away. But in terms of what I've been doing, I got my Universal pass yesterday. Universal Studios Hollywood here in Los Angeles, and uh, I was wearing my Frankenstein shirt and. Uh, I, I turned a corner, and one of the char- Frankenstein, obviously, you know, a person Sue was walking around, saw me from a distance, and just started applauding. Oh, it was it was really cool. It was really cool. It's the whoever it was started applauding and pointing at me, and then he was like beckoning me to come over, and I went over there. And- yeah, a good friend of mine, Phil Barrett. Phil Barrett works up at Universal. He is one of the one of the main attractions in Walking Dead. Really? Yes, he is. Oh, by the time I got there, it was closed. I, yeah. I think they, they well, obviously, because there's people. That are doing the zombies, so they probably can't have it open late, late, or else, you know, they probably have to start paying overtime to these people. But yes, I don't know, but no, that's no. And I think for the longest time, Phil was part of the Hogwarts experience. Oh yeah. But his lifelong dream was to be a zombie in The Walking Dead. I'm not down for that. <laughs> well, that's you know. It makes him happy, and he's very good at it. So, What, what about you? Um, how did you survive the windstorm that overtook Los Angeles? I oh. was actually in downtown LA when that started. The windstorm was the windstorm is not something we're going to discuss. <laughs> okay, let's not talk about it then. We're not going to talk about it. What we are going to talk about before Bill Hutton calls in, we're going to talk about a movie that you haven't seen yet that I know you want to see, Brian, that... For me, it is one of the funniest films of the year so far. You heard me talk about it a few weeks ago after I had just done interviews. Well, the film is now out. How to Be a Latin Lover, starring the fabulous Eugenio Derbez. This marks Eugenio's big crossover from Spanish-speaking films, bringing his comedy as a leading man to uh, English-speaking films. And I got to tell you, it is hilarious between Eugenio... 
Salma Hayek, Raquel Welsh, Rob Lowe, um, Linda Lavin, and Renee Taylor. And a brand new little star that you got to keep your eyes out for, Rafael Alejandro. There is this film is hilarious, and then of course you got Rob Corddry, Rob Riggle in there too. Um, it is a comedic delight. It has so much heart, though. Raquel Welsh uh, is people forget how good she is at comedy, and she steals the scenes that she's in with Rob Lowe and with Eugenio. She steals them. Forget about them. They, while they're being comedic, they essentially come off as the straight man to what she pulls off. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. But the man helming, helming how to be a Latin lover. Script was written by Chris Spain and, and John Zach. And this is produced, Eugenio is also the producer on this film through his Three Paws company. This is the first big feature that uh, they're producing. But Ken Marino, you all know Ken as an actor. You know him for his work on Children's Hospital. You know him for Fresh Off the Boat, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Bad Milo, um, Marry Me. Just, he's been acting forever. One look and you know who he is. But Ken finally got up the gumption to step behind the camera. And he does it beautifully with How to Be a Latin Lover. I sat down for an exclusive interview with Ken, talking to him about... You know, his directorial choices, but most notably working with his cinematographer, John Bailey. A cinematographer is a director's best friend, especially when you're a first-time director. Ken couldn't have done any better than John Bailey. You may recognize his work uh, in The Way, Way Back. He has a lightness that he brings with his lighting. His shot composition is always flawless. There is a, a tonal bandwidth that just tells its own story and just complements the actual script. Um, so I got to at, I talked to Ken about working with John Bailey and developing how to be a Latin lover. I want to get into the heart of this directing process for you. Yeah. Most notably, working with John Bailey as your cinematographer. <laughs> yeah. What the two of you, what he did with the way way back, yeah. amazing. And I see that same tonal bandwidth here in terms of lightness. There's a great tonal and visual lightness, celebratory, fun. But then you balance that out with the warmth inside Sarah's apartment where you bring in color and you bring the camera in tighter mm-hmm. as opposed to the wider angles when you've got Eugenio and Rafa outside <clears throat> yeah. where it's larger than life. Go big or go home. Right. How did the two of you go about designing <clears throat> this entire visual palette? Because it is... It tells its own story that just complements what's on the page. Well, first, um, thank you for um, seeing that stuff because, you know, not everybody kind of takes that in and, and um, recognizes the <clears throat> the work that's behind that. So I appreciate that. Um, you know, the truth is you know, uh, working with John was sort of mind-blowing for me. Um, you know, there's... 15 movies that he's shot that are, you know, classic movies that I adore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to get the opportunity to work with him was pretty phenomenal. Um, and he's a, del- <laughs> he's a delight. He 
he's just a really uh, wonderful, interesting, funny, st- I mean, super intelligent um, guy who is just like a, you know, a, a encyclopedia of knowledge of, of this town and how to, how to approach a movie and, and um, how, and, and the look of things. I, I you know, I, I sat down with him when we started, and you know, one of the things that I wanted us to try to do was anytime the kids were together, we kept talking about the um, the Charlie Chaplin movie, the um, the kid. The kid, I was going to say, <clears throat> to be the one. Yeah, and uh, you know, my goal for a lot of those exterior shots, uh, or our goal, was to. Um, you know, get stuff in two shots and to have them, because I knew what we had with Eugenio um, as far as how he works with children, and um, and I knew that Rafa was, or I hope, you know, I, I from his auditions and from talking to him, I knew that we had a chance to kind of not have to build a scene in singles or in, like, you know, to, to cheat it because they couldn't get through the scene or something, you know. Um, they were able to do these beautiful runs, and my hope was to, uh, much like the kid in the um, scenes with Eugenio and Rafa, to, to cover a lot of it in two shots and to feel the dynamic between the two of them in a, in a single shot uh, as opposed to um, singles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talked about that. We also shot in a, um, what's the format, the uh, sort of two-to-one Sure, the widescreen. Yeah, and um, that was, you know, John John was like, I'd, li- I'd like to do this, and I was like, that'd be great, you know. Um, and so that added this sort of even more of a cinematic kind of uh, look to the movie that let us kind of create these tableaus where he's got such a beautiful eye um, in framing stuff. And so when we would get places, I'd be like, you know, the, you know, we after we scouted the locations and we'd look at stuff so I'm sort of like thinking about this you know approaching it from here and, and doing stuff and then he would you know he always had this beautiful uh, viewfinder uh, where he would kind of set up the shot and he would lay it out for me and he would show it to me and I'd be like my god he's like he would always frame just everything was just beautifully framed if you watch the movie with that in mind you'll see these really beautifully kind of composed uh, shots which you know, I feel like in a lot of comedies now, it, that's not really the. Uh, it's not. It's not as important. You know, mm-hmm. uh, especially just with comedies, and we do it in this movie, and I, I did it in this movie, and I, I like it in movies. But you, it's more about like the comic runs and stuff like that, and um, and you don't take the time for like to let stuff sit in. Um, you know, sort of wider shots. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a shot where Rob Lowe and uh, Eugenio, after uh, their disaster with Raquel, are walking away, and we had such a beautiful location, and we're like, you know, I was always trying to, along with John, you know, frame it up to to really kind of show the space in a in a in a in a beautiful way, and kind of create these nice tableaus with these characters kind of walking mm-hmm. through them. Um, same with the. Uh, Arden and Rafa when they're in the, the what do you call it, the, uh, the lariat, the... In the park? With the, the, no, with the, the, the animal sculptures, the... Uh, the, the topiary. They, the topiary. The topiary, topiary garden, yeah. Um, and so we, you know, we, we tried to do that in, in any of the exteriors, and even in, in the interiors, but what we did with Sarah's apartment was, um, 
and the fact that you bring that up, that we kind of made it feel a little smaller and, you know, uh, 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 not claustrophobic because we didn't want it to feel... It was very intimate. It was intimate. It was, there was a warmth. We wanted to, we wanted to create a warmth to it um, to make her home um, inviting, but not these, you know, uh, to, to contrast where he came from, you know, right. Peggy's apartment uh, uh, and, and, you know, Renee, where Renee Taylor's... Uh, uh, home and, and these big empty spaces with you know these lush big shots we tried to kind of you know in, in that opening credit sequence we tried to kind of really establish this like a lot of space and a guy going through it he has everything but he has nothing and then you know when you get to the her apartment it's 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 smaller it's tighter but it's warmer and it's more inviting and like so what's the what is the world you want you know right. and and so that's we tried to do that and i really appreciate <laughs> i appreciate you picking up on that and that was an extreme extremely detailed explanation by ken marino of how he approached at least with framing and the visual look of how to be a latin lover but right now we have on the line we have the fabulous Tony-nominated Bill Hutton. Hello, Bill. Hello, Debbie. Welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. I am so excited to have you. Well, thank you. It's kind of nice to be here, Ah. even though I'm in New York. <laughs> well, that's true. But you see, that's the beauty of radio and telephones, and we can be virtually anywhere we want. Exactly. But one place that you're definitely going to be on May 13th is in Los Angeles at the Saban Theater. I certainly wouldn't miss it for the for the world. You know, this this is this is a bittersweet uh event this year for Stage LA, the 33rd year of the gala fundraiser and David Galligan has announced as our listeners know because we broke the news here um that this will be the final curtain yeah, it's, it's amazing to to think that this thing started back in 1984, and um, to be a part of that that first one, and then to be a part of it for 33 years is is kind of an amazing feat. You know, take us take us back in time, Bill. Um, everybody is, you know, Carol does the show, does behind the lens every year, and talks about what it was like. And she adds a great deal of humor into the whole idea of, you know, as performers, you guys had no backing, you had no costumes, you had no set design, you were doing everything yourselves, including, as Carol says, cleaning the bathroom floor. Exactly. Um, and, and not only that, it was it was at a time, and I'm sure you've probably discussed this before, but um, where you really couldn't mention AIDS and HIV. If you were trying to get a fundraiser, you had to call it something else. So ours became the Southland Theater Artist Goodwill event stage, but there was no mention of AIDS, HIV, APLA, nothing like that, just to to sort of get the public awareness up. And then finally, you know, everybody became a part of the whole thing. But yes... We were scrubbing toilets. <laughs> okay, well, of course, you know, what everybody, and, you know, God rest his soul, Robert Osborne, uh, when I had talk, told Robert once, I said, yeah, Carol said he goes, said that, you know, she was actually scrubbing toilets, and he goes, I would have paid anything to see Carol cooked on her knees scrubbing a toilet. <laughs> and she's a dear woman, isn't she? Oh, my God. Love her to death. 
love her beyond and her husband Tom is equally fabulous but you know the two of you were right there at the very beginning yes myself and and Dale Christian um, and Dale's coming back for the performance on the 13th as well I understand correct correct Um, and it was um, at the I had the name of it and now it's it's gone Um, theater arts down downtown and it was it was just a wonderful space to sort of rediscover, and um, and so we started this this wonderful show in this kind of decrepit, a little bit rundown theater. But um, it didn't matter. The show was so amazing, and then you know became quite popular and was um, asked back for 33 years, raising money for AIDS Project Los Angeles, and all of its. Um, its projects. Well, and that's what the, one of the great things that a lot of people don't, when they think of AIDS and, you know, thanks to Elizabeth Taylor and subsequently to Elton John, those two in particular, mm-hmm. that really shined a huge light on AIDS and HIV, but more from the research end. That's one of the beautiful things about Stage LA and what you have consistently done is all this money is for boots on the ground. It goes to people who need help with pet care, who need help with groceries, who, yes. you know, basic essentials of everyday life. And that's what sets stage apart. And that is, I think, other than the fact that David Galligan has been a diehard at bringing this to life every year and... Performers keep coming back time and time again to participate. Yeah, he, he is the heart and soul of the whole thing. Um, and, and, and when we did start it, it was a, it was, it was a very um, interesting time in Los Angeles as mm-hmm. well because the uh, 84 Olympics had just happened. The um, 84 um, um, what, theater um, it was a festival of theater theatrical uh, events going on and it, it was just kind of like a really blossoming time and all while that was blossoming there were so many of our friends uh, you know dying and and it was we had to do something and 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 thankfully um, David and James Carroll Pickett and Susan Obrow stepped in and created this and and of course Michael Kearns who mm-hmm was a big part of the whole thing. You know, what, what's involved for you as a performer, especially going back to those early days? Now you've got David putting everything together. You're not cleaning toilets. You're not selling tickets. <laughs> you're not making sandwiches. Well, wait a minute. I haven't gotten there yet. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what, you know, what is the big difference for you as a performer between stepping into something at, at, at a very grassroots opening level, not knowing if it's going to go anywhere, to now coming in, you know, in 2017 and just performing for everybody's enjoyment? Well, I, I guess the difference is when we first started it, we didn't, we, many of us didn't even know, you know, what, what it was truly about we just knew that there was a need and and we said sure i'll be a part of this because our community was being hit Mm. um and now it's uh it's just become so much of the fabric of 
Los Angeles and AIDS Project, and that it's it's like somewhat old home week, you know, like coming back to those families that you create in every show. Um, doesn't matter what the show is, but but every show has a family, and and you go back to that family, and every year it's it's uh, like a big reunion, and knowing that you're you know you're doing some good work. Well, you know, and this year's theme is Idols and Icons. Mm-hmm. So, and you, to the Broadway community, you and to fans everywhere, you are yourself an idol being the man who originated Joseph in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So, <laughs> I didn't really think about that. Will, will you be performing as yourself at the show? <laughs> <laughs> as my own idol and my own. Yes! <laughs> No, no, no way. I'm going to be... uh, Henry Mancini was um, (gasps) a huge influence on my life as far as music and and recognizing what music does and how it touches people. Um, So I'm going to be honoring that wonderful gentleman Uh. and his beautiful music. Uh, but I'll be myself, yes. I'll be performing myself. <laughs> and here I, I thought you would get to be your own, your own perform yourself as, you know, do Joseph. Right. My own one-man show? I don't think so. Oh. Well, you know, I've, you know, does it surprise you the lifespan that that show has had over the decades? Now you're talking Joseph? Joseph. Yes. Well, you know... I'm not surprised because doing it, you know, for those years, and uh, it touches the audience in such a way. It's such an audience piece, and you can tell as they're eating it up every every uh, performance. You can tell it's just touching a chord, and uh, it just really speaks to people. So on on a wonderful level. So yeah, I'm not surprised that anybody and everybody wants to do it. And the nice thing about Joseph is that anybody and everybody can mm-hmm. because it's such an approachable piece. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've already seen it turned into a straight-to-home video uh, a movie with Donny Osmond back in 1999. And now we've got Elton John, Andrew Lloyd, Reb- Andrew Lloyd Webber, and Tim Rice now putting together an animated version. Mm-hmm. I've heard it, and I think they're even doing a new uh, version in London. Wow. Coming this year, yeah. Now, would you? Has anybody approached you about becoming involved in these new new offshoots of Joseph? <laughs> you mean like playing Jacob? <laughs> well, you know, or there's this great thing called theatrical makeup. Um, you could be. Jo- <laughs> <laughs> there's not enough makeup in the world, but nonetheless. <laughs> but wow, what a lovely thought! Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, I would love to see. Because so often, this is one of the great joys that I have with film and with stage, but especially film, TV, when you have the actors who created these iconic characters come back in later reimaginations, even with a small cameo, because there's that touchstone to Mm -hmm. a gentler time, to days gone by, to the things that you look back, that you look back on with fondness. Absolutely. I I love those moments as well, both in on stage and uh, in film and television. Uh, but no one has approached me about that yet. 
So uh, right now we're just going to do stage and and um, make a, a big evening of what has been 33 years of of wonderful support from the community of Los Angeles and um, and thanking APLA for being there for so many people for so many years. Yeah, is there anyone in the cast that you're looking particularly forward to seeing what number they do? Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people. I want to see everybody. Um, I'm one of those people when every year that we've done this show, I'm, I, I'm in the wings. I try not to get in the way, but I want to be there watching. I want to be there experiencing what my fellow actors are doing out there. And it's, it's, it's just exciting to see what each and each person brings to their individual songs and their, and their um, shows. Well, I know I can't wait to see Carol because she's going to do a tribute to Ethel Merman and Lucille Ball. <laughs> Always a thrill to see Carol. <laughs> I mean, she is just, she's the best. And I know Jake Sim. Jake has said that he's going to be doing uh, George Michael. Wow. He's going to be doing a, a George Michael song. And I'm looking forward to seeing Vicki Lewis, um, Nita Whitaker. Uh, I mean, Jerry Rodriguez, the cast is just amazing. It, it astounds me every year. And then I got an email from Scott Barton last night. He goes, oh, by the way, um, James C. Mulligan has just joined the cast. Exactly. I was going to mention that, and I'm glad to hear that. And David Burnham in it, is in it. And, you know, it, and Reeve Carney. And yep. He could and maybe. Dear, he, Joan, Joan Ryan. <laughs> and, and Christine Petty. I mean, she's amazing. And Jolie yeah. Fisher is always fun. Truly. And Truly. people don't realize that she really, she's got a great singing voice. Great singing voice. And she is, she's such a wonderful comedian, too, an actress. Yeah. You know, I personally think she's a much, that as a singer, I think she is, her range and her vocal qualities are much better than her mother. Oh yes, I, I totally agree. And the interesting thing is that those those qualities just get better every year. Yeah, <laughs> they deepen with with um, maturity and age, and and she's doing that. And that doesn't always happen with a performer. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> we hope we, we hope, hope that that happens, but sometimes it doesn't. No, you're right. You're absolutely so, right. So I've got to ask you, Bill what What do you do? In between doing stage performances, I know that, you know, you were one of the founders of the Coast Playhouse. Um, and you have done some wonderful theatrical work out here on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. In addition to your Broadway work and then your performances that you and Dale have done together. Correct. We go, we'll do concerts um, uh, around, uh, in and around Los Angeles and and other places in the United States. And um, right now I'm in New York. Um, and to, to be able to, I mean, it's sort of somewhat hung up my tap shoes, as it were. Oh, um, no. Well, you know. You're entitled. I'm, I said somewhat. Okay. And I am, <laughs> I am entitled. But um, I've been investing in shows in, in Broadway and, and staying a part of it in, in that way. So it's it's kind of fun. It's a different um, milieu, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> now, could we possibly at some point see you picking up David Galligan's mantle and continuing with Stage L.A.? 
Well, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's nothing that I ever really thought about. But there also has to be um, the desire for it to, to continue. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are the things that one doesn't know at this right. point. Um, I mean, David is so synonymous with the whole thing, I can't even imagine anybody replacing him to tell no. the truth. Yeah, it's funny because Jake mentioned that. He was saying, wouldn't it be nice if somebody would take the laboring oar and pick up that mantle to continue? It certainly would, and and I hope that somebody would. I don't know that it would be me, <laughs> but I, I would um, encourage anyone else to do that. You know, what, what is the greatest gift? Because you've been performing for so long, but... And you use your celebrity for worthwhile causes like Stage L.A. What is the greatest gift that this that the industry that has given you that carries on that keeps you carrying on to this day? I guess <clears throat> I, the greatest gift to me is being able to share um, what talents I have. And, and whether it's in a show that's being produced and, and an actual book show, whether it's a concert, whether it is stage where all of these incredible performers get together and, um, you know, share their talents and raising this money, it's the giving back from the audience and the acceptance of the audience to say, job well done. That to me is... is biggest payback <clears throat> yeah and it's funny and i and when you talk i hear it in your voice that you get this you get i hear this passion and excitement come out when you talk about stage and the collaboration with all the other talent right it well i mean actually t- to be quite honest it's it's kind of a weepy thing i'm i'm sitting here welling up as i uh think about all the past years and and all the people the people we lost Mm -hmm. the people who who continue and and are still with us performing um yeah it's it's a it's been a momentous thing for us and for the city of los angeles and certainly for aids project los angeles oh you know so worthwhile and i don't think that there is enough there's not enough media exposure anymore. I think Carol may have summed it up a couple of years ago when she said, it seems like people are suffering from AIDS fatigue. There's so many other things popping up. Um, well, it's not just AIDS fatigue, to be quite honest. I think people, I, I, people think that AIDS is so manageable now at this point that they don't really need to worry about it. It's not a fatigue. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, well, you know, we can move on to something else, but it, it, it really, we aren't there yet. No. We really, you know, it, it seems that we're there, but we're not. And so, yeah, we, the fight needs to continue, and certainly people need to continue to support AIDS Project Los Angeles. So <clears throat> if, if you had to give your audience one reason to come and see the show on May 13th at the Saban. And there are plenty of tickets still, good tickets still available, people. StageLA.com. Get out there and buy them. Yes, get out there and buy them. They are all different price ranges. So, And the Saban Theater is just a stunning theater. So you'll have a fabulous experience no matter what. But if there was one reason for you to tell your audience why they should go and see stage on May 13th, what would that be, Bill? Well, I, 
guess, uh, to quote from Hamilton, to be in the room where it happened, um, there's so much love and so much um, excitement in in a theater when it, when a show is being done, and in particularly with a show like this with so much talent. Um, it it's it's just being there and feeling the love, the vibe, the the excitement of being part of a live piece of theater. And. I have to ask, are any of you planning to do anything embarrassing to David Gallagher at the end of the show? <laughs> you mean like a, a bucket of ice over his head? Yes. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> being here, I haven't heard of any rumors, but um, I'll, I'll put my nose to the ground when I get out there. Because I, I think that, you know, there needs to be something, something done to David at the end of this. I agree. And I'm sure that's something will be done. I just don't know what it is at this point. But don't be surprised. Maybe it's another reason to come. Well, you know, I will be there. As Scott knows, I, I wouldn't miss it for the world. So I will be there. And I hope everybody listening, if you're in the L.A. area, please come on out, get your tickets. And if you're not, you can still make donations to Stage L.A. Mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. And it's Saturday, May 13th at the Saban Theater, yes. Yes, it is. Beautiful venue, and I'm sure there's going to be the silent auction again. And they have really cool stuff at the silent auction. They really do. And I always spend a fortune. Sometimes I bid and get outbid, and then I go, well, I can't go any higher, you know. Well, that happens to me all the time, too. And then, But I'm lucky every year that there's always one or two things I really want, and I end up getting them. Good for you. So... Yeah, that makes that always, and it's generally like the full cast signed posters from the year before. <laughs> and those, it's always so much fun to sign those um, when they when they put them up for signature, and everybody's like crawling over each other <laughs> trying trying to sign these. Did I do that one? I can't remember. Did I? Yeah. And, and see, that's what's so great because I see so doing so many press days for film, you know. And they always have a stack of posters that they need all the talent to sign. And they'll bring them through a revolving room to sign. But they get through, you know, maybe 20, many of them, many of the talent, they'll get through 20 posters they don't want to sign anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, people love this stuff. Yes. You know, you're paying it back to your audience. You're giving them a chance to have a piece of the magic. Of the history, yeah. 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 Oh, Bill, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you, Debbie. I look forward to seeing you out there. I am so looking forward to seeing you and everybody else on May 13th, Bill. And I can't wait. I love Henry Mancini myself, so I can't wait to hear what you have in store for us. Yeah, he was a pretty amazing composer. I'll tell you. Absolutely fantastic. Along with Johnny Mercer writing many of his lyrics. Oh, uh, I love his songs. Yes. Dare we even mention Audrey Hepburn? I know. Well, <laughs> there you go. Enough said. Enough said. Bill, thank you. Bill Hutton, thank you so much. Come see him at stage on May 13th. Great. Thank Th- you, Debbie. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Enjoy your, enjoy your day. Bye-bye. You too. So, we're gonna ta- are we going to take a short break, Brian? No short break. We're going to jump right into something very important. We go from the, the uh, 
something important like Stage LA and its fundraising benefit. Now you're going to hear my interview with John Ridley. John Ridley, he's got an Oscar. He's got Emmys. He created American Crime. He wrote 12 Years of Slave. Now he has Let It Fall, Los Angeles, 1982 to 92. Documentary on the the events leading up to the Rodney King, Reginald Denny riots that took Los Angeles and the world by storm, decimated a community, and changed the way we forever view police work, um, police departments, and race relations. Um, It is a stunning documentary. There is a theatrical version that's two hours and 25 minutes, and then the 92-minute version was just aired on ABC Friday night on the 25th anniversary. So now, here you go. You can listen to my interview with John Ridley directing his first documentary, Let It Fall. I'm fine. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very, very well. Very good to be speaking with you. I am thrilled to be talking to you again, especially about Let It Fall. You took my breath away. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, obviously, uh, so much has to do with these individuals who chose to share their stories and um, just in an honest way entrusted us to, to be honorific with things that are still obviously very, very present for a lot of them. And the way you have approached this and put it together as a lead-up to help us understand about the the simmering and burning tensions that finally culminated in the explosion uh, of human emotion. And I think that's really the thing is because, uh, you know, a lot of us, I was here at that time, and we certainly have our perspectives and our memories from watching, uh, from seeing these things happen to parts of the city that were so familiar to us but also so many areas that were very unfamiliar to us. And I think it was very important to try to bring together as many people as possible, as many communities as possible, and individuals who are very directly related to so many of these circumstances. It was very important to us that almost every person represented in this story could at one point or another talk about the moment when uh, I did, and then I did this, Mm -hmm. and this, this happened to me. It's not just, hopefully, um, you know, a dry recitation of facts, but very intimate memories of this time. Well, and that's what really struck me. And I'm curious, uh, my, my first big question, though, is how you came up with this approach as to the structure and the construct of the documentary as a whole, and then breaking it down from there as to finding your specific interview subjects as I'm sh- there is a plethora of people you could have had. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been very fortunate to have been familiar with this material, this story, um, for about 10 years, about 10 years ago, I was approached by, um, Spike Lee and Brian Grazier and Ron Howard about trying to, um, write a narrative feature about uh, the LA uprising. And so over 10 years, um, in different ways, in different forms, you know, the film coming close, falling apart, you know, just to familiarize, familiarize myself with the stories, with the narratives, to look at it in some ways as a writer. And how would you weave all these stories together? How would you um, go about taking these stories and um, add a reveal to them? Um, because it is a difficult story to mount in, in the most typical Hollywood terms because there's not a traditional hero's arc. Um, no one is particularly villainous 
it's not necessarily a happy ending. It is um, multi-perspective, you know, things that in a traditional Hollywood film are very difficult to accomplish. But in terms of a uh, taking facts and taking circumstances, but trying to find a way to reveal them um, as human nature and a human story, rather than just a dry dissertation of the facts. Now, to, to your second question, it was very important to me to try to find a way to uh, take these individuals, make sure that they were individuals who really had a very personal narrative, um, and then expand it beyond just that one moment. Um, so that these folks, you know, there's, there's a time at the beginning of the film, as you know, where they just sit and talk about their experiences, mm -hmm. where they came from, and their families, and their hopes and their dreams. And some of these individuals are commenting on things that were not related to them directly, but that they witnessed. And then arriving to a point in the story where um, that moment is incredibly personal to them. So it was about having a perspective, having an opportunity to look at it for 10 years. It was certainly in, a, in Lincoln Square Studios and ABC News, having partners who could go out and really find these individuals, build trust, let them know that we were going to be honorific with their stories, uh, but then taking a decade's worth of time and perspective and saying, well, here's a way to take the facts, weave them together, and make a real narrative out of these many, many different stories, these many um, very unique backgrounds. Yeah, I, I mean, I am thrilled you included Lisa Phillips. Her story, not just her personal story, but her defiance of Mulan's order not to go in there because she put her job as what she's a sworn officer to do and the, the benefit and health and safety and welfare of just an average citizen. She put that ahead of herself. Put it ahead of herself, and I think it was, you know, it was important in a lot of ways. Look, uh, we wanted a story. There's obviously a lot of heartache and heartbreak in this story, but, but moments like Lisa's, moments like um, Don Jones, when he goes out in the intersection and helps someone who is uh, of a different background, of mm -hmm. a different... You know, someone he doesn't even know, but wants to help them. But for Lisa Phillips, in that case, um, to say that, you know, all the officers were not of one kind, of one stripe, of one mindset, that while uh, people were saying, look, it may be too dangerous to go in there, you know, other individuals saying, look, this is our job, this is what we have to do. I could not live with myself if I didn't make an attempt to save this individual. And then within that, um, her and her partner to have an incredibly uh, personal moment where the two of them are expressing their concerns about whether they'll live through the night and what that means to them. So all of these stories, you know, again, not just recounting uh, the uprising or the, that time between 1982 and 1992, not just personalizing them with heartache and pain, but also saying within that there, there are people who made incredible choices, incredible decisions, did things that represent the very best of us as well. Well, and, and I think you have a wonderful balance of that, John, especially when I look at and listen to, like, Bobby Green talking. Um, and even going back to Lakeisha Combs, who witnessed, um, you know, the Harlan's uh, murder killing. Yeah. You know, these are things that a lot of people, people are totally unaware if you're outside of that South Central community. I think a lot of times when we think of, you know, what's called the Rodney King riots, you know, we think of Rodney King being beaten, and we think of Reginald Penny being beaten, and there is some kind of odd balancing of the scales, and people say, well, okay, well, that, that was that. And we look at this, um, this event that evolved over time, 
as being about two people or about two races or about two moments, but it was so much more than that. As you say, with Latasha Harlins, uh, with James Mincy, uh, with Karen Tashima, with the Lee family, Edward Lee. Um, there's so many people over time who had lost, who tried to engage in the system, who tried to reform things, who tried to warn the rest of us that um, if we did not engage in the circumstances, if we didn't do what we could to change things, then over time, um, the city was going to fall. Um, we were going to arrive to a place where people felt as though they had no other recourse but to pour into the streets. So, yeah, I think, you know, look, 25 years ago, you know, it's a quarter of a century. Um, there are any number of people who barely remember what happened. There are any number of people who are not even alive when this happened. I think it's very important to go beyond the outsized moments or the moments that are um, solely remembered and realize there are any number of moments where we as a community, we as a city, we as people um, could have changed the direction of a rather tragic trajectory. Mm -hmm. Did you feel, as, as you were endeavoring and embarking on this project, John, did you feel like this was, you were on an excavation, an anthropological study, because so much of this comes, it really comes across in the way you've, you've presented it as a real anthropological study of the human condition over this time period. And I think it's, it's so beautifully executed that way. Oh, I, absolutely. I, I, I felt as though, you know, I think when you talk about excavation, that's the exact right word to use, digging more deeply, not being superficial, um, going wide into this field and making sure that we gave as many individuals as possible and as many individuals from different communities as possible an opportunity to speak to a time and a place that um, in many ways doesn't exist anymore, in many ways thankfully doesn't exist anymore, but we always have to be mindful at the same time that we're not replicating. But it was for us, I mean, look, there, there, there are moments or there are times or there are spaces where it would have been um, easy to perhaps, you know, be exploitative in terms mm -hmm. of the rawness of emotions, in terms of the visceral nature of things that happen. But being patient, being observant, um, listening, uh, opining as little as possible, but building an apparatus for delivering empathy, I think was very important to everybody who was involved. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm curious, um, working with Colin Rich, your editor, how challenging was the edit of of this doc and also I love the fact that you don't have a voiceover you don't have any interjections of explanatory this is very straight it's just the voices of these individuals and the sounds and voices of the archival footage which obviously was a very well, conscious decision but how did that all play into your editing format well I can't first of all say enough about Colin Rich and what he did um, just as background you know Colin has been our editorial assistant on American Crime for um, three seasons. He, well, he's, he's a brilliant young man. He has not edited um, a full or full-length piece before. He had done, um, obviously, much, much heavy lifting as an editorial assistant. He'd also done um, mood pieces or sizzle reels for me personally, where I would give him ideas and find footage and put it together. We'd actually done one for the narrative version of Let It Fall. So we really, you know, completely understood 
how I like to tell stories, um, how I like to weave narratives, but beyond understanding it, you know, could elevate it. And certainly had a focus in terms of, you know, working with ABC, working with ABC News, KABC out here, you know, over a 10-year, a, a story that looks at a 10-year period, um, we had days, you know, months worth of footage, you know, if you strung it all together in day in, day in. Uh, so for Colin to be able to go through this, um, follow the narrative directions that we wanted to embrace, uh, but call to the footage, find the most evocative, the most emotional, um, but also the footage that was most relatable, and put that together, weave that together, and do it, as you say, without um, dictation in terms of how the narrative was going to go, without, without an overlay, um, making sure that the story literally spoke for itself was no easy task, and, and certainly for, for someone who is essentially doing this, certainly Colin and I, this is our first documentary, it's the first time we've done a documentary, first long-form piece that we've done together, uh, first long-form piece that I believe he's done, and to do it so brilliantly, to do it so completely, um, I, I cannot say enough about him, because as in all departments that we're working with, it, it's one thing for me to present ideas, it's another thing for ABC News to present all this information, it's another thing that then to have people who can sit down, call through it, weave it together, weave together um, moments from 10 years ago, weave together uh, interviews that we've done over the last weeks and months, and walk away with a piece that just makes people feel on every level. Mm -hmm. How much is cut down from the theatrical version for what is going to air on ABC? So in the version that's now going to air on ABC, and ABC has given us a total of about 92 minutes. So for, as you know, you know, a, a two hours on television is generally 84 minutes. Yeah. So they've given us 92 minutes, which is you know, just amazing. But even at that, that 92 minutes, our full-length feature documentary is two hours and 25 minutes. So I do believe that, the, you know, the 90 minute we've, we've put together a version that carries the, the weight of the impact, the scope and the scale, and does it in a very patient way, which I think is the other thing. You know, we could, we could put that information in there and just rush through it. I think having a patient, a patience with the storytelling is very important. But I am deeply appreciative of ABC and the Disney company, the entire Disney company, to say, look, if there is another version, if there is a more complete version of the story that you want to tell, we will find a way to tell that and to give us a theatrical release, to give us a full-length version that will then live on. I mean, for us, the most important thing is to present this story to the widest, widest audience possible. And with the support of ABC, ABC News, um, and then the entire Disney company were able to do that. It's very remarkable. It really, really is. Now, I know you, you've got to run, but before you do... Because this is your first doc, John, what was the learning curve like for you going from feature films and from television into a full two-hour and 25-minute two and documentary? Well, the, the thing that I had to learn very immediately was to, uh, I think in the historical feature work that I've done, whether it's Red Tales or, or 12 Years of a Slave, there's an emotional honesty of the storytelling. There's certainly moments when you're taking... Uh, stories that span a great length of time and you're distilling them down to essentially two hours, 
you may have to conflate characters. You may have to combine moments in history. Um, I, I think that you know, that is the history of, of the biopic of the historical film. And as long as there is a real emotional honesty within that, as long as you are leaving a document that people can begin their studies with, uh, I think that that is acceptable. It, it, it is something that has been done throughout time. Uh, with a feature-length documentary, with a documentary in, in, at any length, but certainly a feature-length, um, you have to go beyond an emotional honesty and try to have a real, true honesty. And that means removing my own biases as much as possible, um, my own opinions as much as possible, and really creating a space where it is about the individuals who are telling their stories to do it in a way that um, embraces, embodies, supports, um, does not try to exonerate individuals over what may have happened um, many, many years ago, decades ago, um, but doesn't also try to unnecessarily exonerate people either. Um, it, it just exists. And knowing that this is going to exist um, for the next five years, for the next 10 years, until somebody else can use this to build off of um, honesty, objectivity, uh, were very, very important to have as, as central starting points for telling the story. Well, again, you did an amazing, amazing job with this. I mean, the two hours and 25 minutes as I sat there watching, when it ended, I couldn't believe it was over. It, the thing is, you know, this is uh, they're, they're, it's powerful, and I thank you for, for your praise. Just knowing even at two hours and 25 minutes that we've only begun to scratch the surface. Oh, yes. I know there are many other documentaries out there, many other stories, many people said, you know, oh, gee, there's so many out there. And I, I really believe, I don't think there can be enough. No. When you think about the tens of thousands of people who are directly affected by this and the millions of other people indirectly affected by it. But we're very happy and proud to have been a part of telling this, this story that needs and deserves to be told. And yes, indeed, Let It Fall, Los Angeles, 1982 to 92 is a story. And as John said, it is just scratching the surface. It is still playing uh, in limited release in theaters. I do not have a date for when this will be uh, available on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, but, you know, check the Internet. Check IMDb with release dates. Um, this is a documentary that everybody should see and that we can learn from even today. So that is, as Brian is packing up his, whatever he's doing in, in there, that we are just about out of time now. Um, we got in a little bit of Ken Marino and how to be a Latin lover. And trust me, if you need a laugh, if you want to laugh, and if you just want to see a really good comedy, go see it with Eugenio Derbez. Um, Hopefully we'll have time for more of uh, Ken Marino next week. The uh, interview clips will be up on my website sometime this week, which as of right now, Brian doesn't even know this, is still MovieSharkDeBlore.com, but maybe changing in the near future to, to well, uh, we don't know, because what I wanted is not available <laughs> But uh, we may be rebranding everything to Behind the Lens in some fashion. So, but for now, you can uh, find my review of How to Be a Latin Lover on MovieSharkDeplore.com and other online sites and in print. Uh, also, 
Uh, and as I said, my interview with Ken Marino and my interview with John Ridley will be up on my site sometime later this week. So, And then next week, we've got Carol Cook. Again, Stage LA, May 13th at Saban. Trust me, these performers are amazing. If you've never seen live performances before done in a theatrical fashion, this is a great introduction for you, and you're supporting a really great cause at the same time. So next week, Carol Cook is with us. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 